This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. From the world's humanitarian capital, we explore the challenges facing our planet. Whether it's migration or climate change, human rights or global health, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for some straight talk with the people facing up to those challenges. In today's programme. On the 75th anniversary of the United Nations in 2020, people from all walks of life are coming together to discuss global challenges and solutions. Yes, the United Nations at 75. And what's the point of multilateralism? Is it working? Do we need a big, some would even say bloated, institution like the UN? To discuss this, we have three amazing guests, all joining us remotely because, in case anyone needs reminding, we are still in the middle of a pandemic. So apologies in advance if our virtual studio has that telltale Skype sound quality. And without further ado, let's introduce our guests. First, historian and professor of international relations at Geneva's Graduate Institute, Mohammed Mahmoud Mohamedou. It remains an entity that has in its seeds very powerful appeal. This notion that you have one place where all of the nations with one equal vote can come together and can debate the questions of the world. Humanitarian worker and deputy director of international protection at the UN Refugee Agency, Bernadette Castle-Hollingsworth. In the UN, we try not to lose hope, but uh, sometimes doing this work, you go through moments of doubt and uh, it's sometimes difficult. And master student of the UN and multilateralism, Jasmine Pokua Aduri Bonsa. I believe the UN needs to change. I believe the structure of the UN itself needs to change. Because when the UN was created, most of the countries were still colonised. The signing is done. The Great Charter is completed. This draft of mankind's deepest hopes already a historic document. On October 24, 1945, at a solemn ceremony in San Francisco, the United Nations was born out of the ashes of the Second World War. China signing first as the first nation attacked in this war. Then for Russia, Ambassador Gromyko commits his country also to the agreements and objectives decided upon. It's an organization that has been with most of us our entire lives. And yet, as Professor Mohammed Mahmoud Mohamedou explains, at the time it was a radical concept. Precisely 75 years ago, the whole logic of setting in motion an international organization of the type that we know now, that is the United Nations, was not necessarily something that was so obvious. The world was coming out out of a period of large-scale conflict, and the dynamics of what we know today to be multilateralism were not so familiar, even the very concept or vernacular of it, or if it did exist, was limited to a few actors around the world. But there was a sense that this conversation, this project, had to have the universal notion in it from the beginning. A shared belief in this moment was paradoxically the result of the traumas of World War II, this transition that was being born. And yes, there was certainly a realization 
that uh, this was, if ever, the moment to sort of imagine a different type of world and importantly, a different type of engagement amongst the nations. You talked about imagining a different kind of world, but I'm wondering, did those first member states build in flaws to the UN right from the beginning? If there's any flaw that was there, it was the inability of the project to divorce itself from the great power politics, which were dominant at the time, and this north-south divide, that opened the door for this almost inevitable, to this day, accusation of the politicized nature of the UN. But I really think that ultimately, we have to come to terms with the fact that this entity, for all of its faults, and there are many, really, the politics around it, the problem of efficiency, as I said, the sometimes dragging behind when fast-paced developments are happening. For all of those things, it remains an entity that has in its seeds very powerful appeal. This notion that you have one place where all of the nations with one equal vote can come together and can debate the questions of the world. Recommending the admission of the Republic of Somalia to the United Nations. The next candidate for admission to the United Nations is the Republic of Niger. In its first three decades, the UN grew fast. Colonies became countries with aspirations of independence and a voice at the new global decision-making body, the United Nations. A young man from one of those newly independent countries, Kofi Annan from Ghana, joined the UN at the age of 24 and rose up the ranks to become Secretary-General. Fast forward to 2020, and 27-year-old student Jasmine Pokua Aduri Bonsa views him as an inspiration. I am from Ghana and the UK. I grew up in both. And from a very young age, I've always been interested in the United Nations. First of all, if you're Ghanaian and you don't know who Kofi Annan is, it's seen as like as, as a right of way to know who Kofi Annan is. So I think that was my first sort of spark into what the UN was, because then you start doing a little bit more research about who he is. First Ghanaian to become the UN Secretary General. I just sort of started researching a little bit more how this impacts on my world, really. Tell me about what you began to understand or learned about how it impacts your world, Jasmine's world. So whilst in Ghana, for example, I used to see all of the projects that were going on with UN women trying to get girls off the streets, particularly girls who work within the market off the streets into technical jobs. So then I grew an understanding of what it meant for the UN to have an impact on all different aspects of our lives to do with the environment, to do with peace and conflict, to do with equality issues, to do with human rights. So, yeah. It intersects within pretty much everything that we do. It's a beast of an organisation. And this beast of an organisation, as you as you put it, it's 75 years old. Is it still growing strong, do you think? I believe the UN needs to change. I believe the structure of the UN itself needs to change. Clearly, the member states are not happy with the current UN system. If it changes 
to actually reflect what the world is and to actually reflect what is wanted from the member states. Because when the UN was created, most of the countries were, were still colonised. So the UN as it existed then, which still has the same constitution as it does now, has not actually reflected the changes that are currently in the world. The member states that are member states now were not member states then. India and Pakistan bring charges before the United Nations, accusing each other of aggression in Kashmir. Streaming into the little town of Kitwe, just across the border from the Congo, come the refugees with whatever they could bring and often bearing marks of the trouble they had getting away. And as it expanded, the UN was looked to increasingly as the body which could, if not solve the world's problems, then at least ease them, to be the first on the scene in a crisis. Bernadette Castle-Hollingsworth found herself drawn to UN humanitarian work. Actually, I think I was always interested in becoming part of it. Uh, my strong interest was always from a very young age to try to be helpful uh, where I could. Um, I was dragged somehow to international humanitarian law and looking at different settings, I felt that helping refugees would be something that I would want to do. And you thought helping refugees through the United Nations, specifically this organisation? So when I studied during my, my first master's degree, uh, international humanitarian law, I was very impressed by uh, two speakers from UNHCR, from the UN. At the time, the genocide in Rwanda had just taken place and there were millions of refugees in neighboring countries. And I think what motivated me was seeing uh, these hundreds of thousands of, of people fleeing with nothing really but uh, themselves and their children crossing borders. And when I was reflecting about what I should do in life, <laughs> I felt that refugees among many other people on earth who really need help are maybe the ones who need more help than the others because often they are forced to flee with nothing and they are not part of the conflicts that they flee. They are just uh, victims of those. And I felt that I wanted to contribute the best I could to helping and protecting them. The tiny Central African country of Rwanda appeared today to have descended into chaos. The best estimate uh, now looking back is about 800,000 people were killed in 100 days of, of, of chaos of violence there. United Nations negotiations to open Sarajevo airport for shipments of food and medicine continue, but so far they have failed. Bernadette became interested in humanitarian work in the 1990s, a decade when, as she mentioned, the Rwandan genocide took place and the war in former Yugoslavia, both crises where many viewed the UN as having failed. Paradoxically, Mahmoud sees this as a good decade for the UN. Where I think the UN did well was the decade of the 90s. Why do I say this? Because at that very moment, so precisely at the end of the Cold War, right at that moment, there was an opportunity for the UN to show whether it's relevant or not in this new world. And we were literally using those terms then. And during those phases, the UN did really step up and was able to deliver a series of seven world conferences, which gave us a lot of the 
vernacular we use today, which we teach, which we practice, which our students are looking for, the sustainable development in Rio in 1992, the Human Rights Conference in Vienna in 1993, the World Conference on Population in Cairo in 94, the Social Development Conference in Copenhagen in 95, that same year, a conference on women in Beijing, a world conference, and of course, the universal jurisdiction in Rome in 98, and that decade of world conferences introducing norms came to an end in 2001 with the conference in Durban about racism and discrimination and xenophobia. It's really extraordinary that during those 10 years, you had a series of lead themes being essentially the new agenda. And I think that was a moment where the UN should be given credit for setting in motion those standards. Some people, though, you're talking about a lot of conferences. They might just say this is UN bureaucracy. And and actually, the 90s was the decade of the Rwandan genocide, the war in former Yugoslavia, places where many think the UN was ineffective. Certainly, that 90s decade was also the rise of unceasing military interventionism. But those were not necessarily the faults of the United Nations per se. These were fundamentally very much the responsibility of particular countries. If we look at the big one, the genocide in Rwanda, the United Nations was present. We know about all of the details that took place. But ultimately, the Clinton administration, under the influence of what was, had taken place earlier in Mogadishu, in Somalia, had chosen not to engage. And all of the other conflicts that we saw during those decades, whether this in the Balkans, were very much driven by specific countries. The embargo on Iraq, which was a tragedy, a human tragedy. Look at the, what UNICEF at the time reported in terms of the children that suffered through that and that died was essentially the result of the U.S. administration and its continuation of the Gulf War with the Saddam Hussein regime. But of course, what we see after 9-11 is much, I think, darker themes internationally. And once again, the United Nations, I think, falls victim to a large extent of what the nations that constitute it end up uh, doing themselves or amongst themselves. It was a nighttime attack that was scarcely visible from cameras in downtown Kabul, Afghanistan's capital. The Central African Republic is in shambles, the result of a brutal civil war that's killed tens of thousands of people. After being stranded in no man's land between Jordan and Syria for 11 days, Um Muhammad finally arrives in Jordan's Azraq camp. Bernadette Castle-Hollingsworth began her career with UNHCR in the wake of 9-11, deployed to Pakistan to support refugees fleeing Afghanistan. From there, she was sent to the Central African Republic and then on to Jordan, where, in 2013, she set up Azraq Camp to house the growing numbers of people fleeing Syria. At the time, I was interviewed by journalists uh, every day. There was a lot of media attention for what was happening in Syria. Uh, I was also discussing with refugees every day, going to their shelters and, and asking them. And I think that not only me, but nobody could ever have thought that seven years later, 
these refugees will still be in Jordan, in Lebanon, and in all neighboring countries today. And as a matter of fact, I am still in contact with a refugee woman there. She regularly writes to me. And she really touched me because she shared with me for the first time pictures of her house in southern Syria that was totally uh, destroyed. And I felt at the time that uh, she was losing hope, you know. In the UN, we try not to lose hope. And, and I think some of our work is actually to, as we say in UNHCR, to stand by refugees, you know, for as long as they need our help until they can return to their country or find a solution. But uh, sometimes doing this work, you go through moments of doubt and uh, it's sometimes difficult. Does it concern you that there's in some quarters a move away from what you call the kind of collective effort, multilateralism others might call it? Yes, uh, based on my field experience and based on what what we believe, uh, multilateralism, the one that we have experienced over the past 75 years, uh, since the UN were created, uh, may not always be perfect, but it is the solution to global issues. And I mean, we are now experiencing a pandemic, COVID-19, but... You know, we believe, or I believe, that it's only through multilateralism that, you know, we can address uh, other global issues from climate change, environmental degradation, to movements of people, including forced movements of people, the economic repercussions, for example, of COVID. We live in, in an interdependent world. And... Some member states, uh, governments would be tempted to think that they, they will be able to find solutions on their own will be proven wrong. Uh, this is what the history has, has showed us. As people in eastern Ghouta continued to die, in the Security Council they continued to argue. But for multilateralism to work, the participants have to feel equal and they have to be able to agree. The United Nations' five big powers, the United States, Russia, China, France and the United Kingdom, are permanent members on the UN Security Council and have a veto. That membership, Mahmoud believes, is outdated and problematic. In effect, the Security Council, uh, as it stands today, is a snapshot of the political reality, the strategic reality of 1945. It really is about the victors of World War II, that's essentially what you would have. And so to see how the world has traveled in all of these decades and to realize that, for instance, Germany does not sit on the Security Council, but France does when you look at the state of Europe economically, politically, this is arresting. When you see the absence of important countries around this world, such as India, Egypt, Nigeria, Brazil, that are not part of those permanent seats, it raises questions precisely about why those particular countries have a veto power and a permanent seat, essentially, on all of the matters that are crucial to the sort of the march of the world on security affairs. It's, it's a fundamental problem that the UN has. This has been discussed for quite a while, for too long, in fact. But it's as if there's a bit of a paralysis. And I think unless this is really addressed 
you will not have a different UN. The, the Security Council, if it is going to have so much power, really has to reflect the balance of power around the world. And currently, it simply does not. In 1950, a new landmark arose in New York City, a permanent headquarters for the United Nations, the world's workshop for peace. Today, as we celebrate 75 years of the United Nations, it has 193 member states. When it began in 1945, there were just 51. The world has changed a lot in those 75 years, and Jasmine is one among many who has questions about the UN's purpose in the 21st century. Do I think the UN is still relevant? I think the UN could be relevant because I see a lot of speeches and I've always seen these speeches about how global challenges to the world need global solutions. And this has been going on for years, decades even. And it's really interesting how we keep regurgitating over and over and over and over again the same things and every time there's a new celebration when there was the 70th year anniversary there were celebrations about trying to find global solutions to global challenges um my hope is that this un at 75 because it's the biggest conversation ever launched obviously will actually make those changes that have been suggested by all those who have contributed to the conversation so far. The thing about multilateralism, though, is that there is a certain move Mm -hmm. away from it. I also sense that in your answer there is implied giving the UN a bit more oomph, a bit more power to to do what needs to be done. And the big superpowers in the world Mm -hmm. are not going to do that. It is a really, really difficult one. Um, But I believe that, and I think right now, actually, you could see that it's in the best interest for a lot of countries to be able to cooperate, especially because we're moving towards such a globalised world. And I think it moves beyond the sort of unilateral and single-minded thinking that this is not going to affect our countries. I think this was a great wake-up call in terms of the actual pandemic. It was a great wake-up call to see that no one is exempt from being affected by things that are happening in other parts of the world. It is a question of leadership and leadership within these countries as well. As we've seen with countries with really quite impressive leaders um, like New Zealand, they have absolutely taken things into their own hands and they're also very multilateral in nature like they're quite open to hearing what other people in other parts of the world have to say so I think and it's a shame that it had to take a, a pandemic to show that we need each other but I believe this could be a great starting point to having conversations about why we really really require the help of each other. For many, like Jasmine, the coronavirus pandemic has reinforced the need for a multilateral body to bring countries together to tackle a global threat. Bernadette, who has spent her life in some of the most difficult parts of the world, is convinced the collective nature of the UN 
is a force for good. Repeatedly over the years, having been uh, deployed often in, in remote areas or in conflict areas or sometimes in, in more stable, uh, stable areas in all these different contexts, whether I'm talking to you about the Central African Republic or a desert in Jordan or Cairo in Egypt, in all these places, you... Uh, needs leadership, you need a drive, but you need togetherness and, and you need the collective efforts. And this is how we grow, but it's also the making of the UN that I think makes this possible. The fact that we work with people from all countries in the world, uh, it's one of my motivations. I believe in the togetherness. I believe also that the only thing we really have in common, all of us, are our differences and our diversity. And it's uh, by learning from each other that we grow. You have worked since Pakistan in many, many different places. Is there one place that really stands out for you or one person, one refugee? It is a very difficult question um, because I uh, have met extraordinary persons everywhere. Um, but in one of my last assignments in Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh, uh, where I was deployed um, a couple of months after the influx from uh, Myanmar started in uh, at the end of 2017. And I remember one of them in particular who had taken, uh, besides his papers, so his IDs, birth certificates from, for the children, his um, work contracts, uh, besides his documents, he had only taken the number plate of his house in northern Rakhine State, and, and that stays with me. It stays with me because uh, that person demonstrated to me, if I needed to be reminded that, you know, there is what you see and there is what you do not see. And what he took with him actually was not only what I've just mentioned, he, it, he also brought to Bangladesh with him his skills, his hopes, his sorrows, you know, uh, but his memory, the proof of his belonging in Myanmar was the number plate of his house. They have made a beginning, a brave beginning that can build a mighty structure for peace. Out of a world of agony and total war has come a charter that must mark a turning point in human history. So where does that leave us in this 75th anniversary year? Reform of the United Nations can only be achieved by the member states. Mahmoud believes we are at a pivotal moment. What we have is, is this multiplicity of, of rising nationalism. I think you can even speak of neo-authoritarianism in many, many places around the world. We see it in the United States, we see it in Europe, we see it in the Middle East, we see it in Asia, we see it in Africa. This is an important moment for the world to realize that unless this march of this kind of authoritarianism in the remaking is dealt with, we're moving towards 2020s, which might even be worse on that front. But now, this is a crisis, but every crisis also opens the possibility 
of addressing these issues and more. If you combine this push with other issues, including the most recent coronavirus crisis, which has also raised the question of the limits of globalization, then you might have also the conditions for new debate, for new engagement, for mobilization. So the crisis can go either way. It can deepen the existing negative trends that the post 9-11 world has given us, securitization, neo-authoritarianism, mistrust, which I think is fundamental to the UN, a lack of trust amongst nations. All of those dynamics can be cemented and therefore making the UN even less and less able to address them. Or there could be kind of an epiphany moment, a wake-up call here. I see the glass certainly half empty as far as the dynamics of the past couple of years, but I see it potentially half full when it comes to the promise of the crisis and what we can do with it. Meanwhile, Jasmine, a critic of the UN's current structure, but a firm believer in multilateralism, has a message for young people who may, like she once did, wonder what the point of this mammoth institution is. Why should my 16-year-old self be interested in the UN? The UN is an impossible organisation to get away from. It truly impacts on a lot of things that we do. And there are there is no question about this whatsoever. There are some pretty incredible people who work within the system, from the works of UNHCR to UNICEF. These people do incredible work every day. The UN impacts on almost anything that happens in this world, whether it's health or businesses, trade. So I think it's important for the 16-year-old, 17-year-old to understand how this organisation, based in New York, based in the Genevas of the world, for them to discover how it actually impacts on their lives personally. And our last word goes to Bernadette. Despite or because of all the challenges facing the United Nations, facing our planet in fact, the UN's humanitarian effort remains essential to lives around the world. And she encourages young people to think about joining that effort. Absolutely do it. (laughs) Um, I would say work for it. It's a privileged life to be able to help others like we do. It's also not an easy life always. It requires lots of dedication and sacrifice, not only from you, but also from your family, your partners, your children and your parents. Uh, So it's fantastic to be able to help and to do so seeing the impact of of what we do. But it's also a life that uh, is not necessarily easy every day. (laughs) So be ready. And that brings us to the end of this special edition of Inside Geneva, Join us again next time, where we'll be going behind the scenes to find out what it's really like being in charge of a big United Nations agency. What are the challenges? What are the pitfalls? And what's the role for these agencies now the UN is 75? A reminder, this has been a Swissinfo.ch production And you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series and subscribe to it by going to swissinfo.ch forward slash eng 
forward slash Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks, and thank you all for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swissinfo. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.